traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode is brought to you by Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can say that I get a lot of value out of them. Merck Research is different from other research, which usually just cherry picks all positive or all negative charts and then falls into the trap of confirmation bias. Merck Research provides an intellectually consistent approach by going through a consistent set of relevant data and then putting it through a consistent set of frameworks, which is then summarized in a checklist and in a concise written summary. Their monthly economic and market data review provides an excellent overview of the macro landscape. It's all compiled in one place and easy to interpret chart books with written analysis. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer and get a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website merckresearch.com forward slash contrarian. That's Merck spelled M-E-R-K. Or you can log on to merckresearch.com, sign up for a regular subscription, and enter the code contrarian at checkout to take advantage of this free offer. Now on to today's episode. All right, Chris Krug of Chatham Harbor Capital Management. Thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. We are talking to you about your investment strategy, which I have kind of loosely termed distressed investing. Now, traditionally, or correct me if I'm wrong, most distressed investors get involved on the debt side of things, buying the bonds and then working through the company as it works out sometimes in bankruptcy court. But you attack this from an equities perspective, which one would think is pretty risky on the one hand, which makes it of course contrarian. And then secondly, the whole distressed cycle has kind of now been put on hold because of COVID largely. And they just correct me if I'm wrong, but there just have not been all that many bankruptcies. Again, you don't, you don't deal with the actual bankruptcy bankruptcies, but put all that in there. And then also the fact that you focus on industrial companies where everybody else now is focused on tech and growth or so it seems. And I thought that this would be a good opportunity to have you come on the podcast and discuss these things. So without me screwing things up anymore, why don't I kick it over to you and you tell us more specifically about your investing strategy. All right. So, so what we do is we, we try to find companies that people think are going to become uh, go bankrupt, more or less. So we're very valuation driven. So more or less, I try to buy things at less than three times pre-tax free cash flow on the equity. So why three times? Three times is good because if a lot of people think cheap's seven or 10 times, but, but ideally, most of the companies I buy have a lot of debt on them or, or they're, they're in some kind of situation where, where people, uh, there's a refinancing cliff or, or something coming forward. So 
and, and a lot of the situations are actually deleveraging where they're using all their free cash flow to pay down the debt. So why three times? Three times is interesting because they can start buying back shares. Mm-hmm. And if, 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 the, if you have a good capital allocator, they can go, they can be paying down debt. And then if they feel very comfortable that the maturity might be in five or 10 years or, or not five or 10 years, five, five or seven years, then they can stop paying down debt if the, if the stock doesn't move and they can buy back a third of the shares with a free cash flow. So, so ideally you want to have it below that sort of multiple, at least I think so. So, so it can have a meaningful impact. Whereas if it was at trading at 10 times earnings, 10% of the shares is not really a game changer. At least I don't think so in terms of eliminating the share count. So so more or less what we do is we try to find these companies that are that are going through some kind of situation, whether it could be a good co, bad co, or just some kind of turnaround where there, there's there's a good company that's growing inside of a legacy bad company that's declining in revenues so that the people don't understand that the good company is going to become the, the new company going forward. So if we can buy things that have actually have a growth aspect to them, that are trading at extremely low multiples, so sub three times free tax free cash flow, then it generally works out. I mean, there's some risk there. I mean, some people will be scared to touch things that are trading at um, that, that are that have a lot of debt. But th- there's some there's some key nuances that you need to sort of pay attention to. A lot of people use debt EBITDA as your uh, as your metric to ter- determine how much debt there is. But in reality, you should be really looking at debt to free cash flow um, or pre tax free cash flow because you have to understand how long it's going to take them to actually pay down the debt. And if the company has a lot of CapEx, then EBITDA is not a, a good measure right. to, um, to, to figuring out if a company's going to pay off their debt. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there are little nuances to our approach that mm-hmm. uh, and this generally occurs with industrial tech companies. Not that I'm against tech. I love tech. Our, our, one of our largest positions now is a legacy industrial company that is turning into a tech business. So, mm-hmm. You get to buy this thing at a very, very low multiple. And then in the future, maybe get trades off sales. Mm. And that's how you can get our, our sort of hurdle is we, we want to try to find things that are that we think that we can make reasonably off reasonable multiples going forward three or sorry, 10 times in three years. Wow. Okay. So that's a lot. Basket of those, then I then three years it yeah. worked out. Yeah. I mean, that's an extraordinary return. I mean, private equity isn't that good and they hold the companies for 10 years and, you know, do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I'm not um, saying I'm going to get the, those returns. But sure. Sure. No, but still, that's a great goal to have. Right. Yeah. But those so, are very depressed situations for the most part. Right. So now what's to stop a company from, and I guess this is where the special sauce comes in. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the, specifically what you look for in the cash flows, but what's a company, if they have a lot of debt, uh, you know, the equity is a junior most tranche, right. And they can easily just kind of wipe out those people and, and default that and then kick it over to and, and restructure and come out again as a public company later on. Um, obviously you don't want to do that too much because then eventually people won't buy anything, but especially nowadays, like what's going to, what's to keep a company from doing that. Okay. So, so, so there are a couple things that, that work right mm-hmm. in terms of growing free cash flow. Um, one thing is when a company has a high interest rate, a above market interest rate, and it's a legacy piece of debt or something like that, right? And, and it seems like the company's stable enough that, that they should keep the level of EBITDA for, for, for the time being, right? So by refinancing a 10% interest rate where you might pay $50 million in cash interest, and that can decrease to $20 million, you're increasing free cash flow by $30 million. Hmm. Right? And that's a very easy way to get some growth in the business. That also accelerates the debt pay down going forward. Hmm. So, so there are little things like that that can they can you 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 don't want to buy something with a one percent interest rate, right? Because you don't get any leverage, you don't get an increase in free cash flow from paying down interest. Mm-hmm. You, we use EBITDA minus maintenance capex minus cash interest. Maintenance tra- capex is a tricky number because a lot of companies will give you maintenance capex, but but it's in reality they should be including some of the growth capex in the maintenance capex. So interesting. But okay, yeah. very very cool. Yeah. And so then, and, and obviously the, this is mostly, if not entirely publicly available, the, the various debt covenants and, and the various, yeah. uh, you know, um, loans and stuff that the companies have. Call, and, yeah. You can call the IR and they'll, they'll walk you. Uh-huh. Which is another thing that you do that not many people do, especially on the retail side, but 
it's a free country, it's a free market, and there's nothing to stop people from calling up the IRS department, which are all well, public. Emails. You mm-hmm. can ask, mm-hmm. you, you can send the IRS person an email, ask, yeah. them walk, we'll ask them to walk you through the debt covenants. Totally. Very interesting. That's really cool. All right. So, um, and I want to ask you a little later about, uh, you mentioned positions and, and some ideas specifically that you have, but tell me more, a little more about the screening process. Um, and how that works out, how that works. Okay. So I have a very different process than most people. Uh-huh. I, I, I try to meet with, and this is something that's it's hard to replicate on the retail side. Sure. But I try to meet with between 60 and 75 companies a week. A week? A week. Okay. So, so you're I busy. spoke to 2,500 companies because most of the situations I follow, either I'm looking for new, you have to, wait, screeners don't really work for this type of strategy because you're looking for declining revenues. Mm. You're looking for declining margins, stuff like that, where if you try to screen for it, you get a lot of like bad companies that show up and then it's, it's rare that you actually find. So, so what works is talking to management teams, you can go on companies' websites and listen to their investor presentations at conferences. Just go through 20 of those a day for 30 minutes. And that's more or less what I do, but I, I talk to the actual management teams. But you, I, I, try, I try to just hear what they're telling you. So a lot of situations... A lot. The reason why you want to focus on small caps, for example, is that most investment theses are pretty obvious. When, but you have to understand that they exist. So they're they're what ten thousand different micro caps, or I, I think OTC. There are ten thousand Nasdaq. There's there's a bunch. There, there's a lot. No one can keep up with all of them. There's no research coverage. Nothing. No one's following them. No one's keeping track of what's going on. Management's barely even talking to anyone. But sometimes. They show up to a conference for the first time and they're trading at two times EBITDA, but EBITDA has been declining over time. And they have this new part of their business that's really growing and they're trying to get the word out there or the management teams are bad at communicating. So a lot to do, a lot of my process is just talking to them and understanding what, what they think, right? And, and what they think is going to happen. And then I have to figure out whether they're lying to me, which happens, sure. right? Or... If it, it's better when someone's very optimistic about their business because it saves you a lot of time. If someone comes to me and says that they, they think they can grow at 5% a year for the next five years, then I, I can just pass and it's trending at 10 times EBITDA. I just don't care, more or less. But if it's trending at two times EBITDA, let's say, oh, they're banging the table. Our stock's amazing. Our stock's amazing. This company, this new product we have is amazing, but no one's listening to us because we've had this, this legacy business that everyone thinks uh, that our legacy shareholders hate us and we're trying to pivot, those are the situations you want to find where no one's believing anything they're saying. And then you just do a bunch of work. You call up competitors, you call up suppliers, you call up their ex, their ex-employees, customers across the board, and you try to figure out is w- what they have, is it actually good? And then uh-huh. if you have confidence in the revenues going forward. That's when you get really, really good investments. Okay. Interesting. I mean, a couple of things here. I mean, aren't all, isn't all management optimistic about their stock? No. I mean, okay. I mean, it, it depends. I mean, there are different types of situations. There are people that have a product that has zero revenues and they think that they're going to become a billion dollar business one day. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, all right, well, great. Like mm-hmm. maybe, you know what I mean? But it's, it's more that you can find a lot of situations and it, it might help if I give you a couple examples. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, yeah. Do, do you want me to walk through our, our largest position right now? Uh, yeah, maybe let's do that. But let's just first take a quick break to give our advertisers a chance to be heard. Uh, if you are a premium subscriber, you do not get the break. So don't touch the dial. Keep it right here. To become a premium subscriber, go to the website contrarian.supercast.tech, T-E-C-H, and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. 
That's contrarian.supercast.tech. I need to tell you about Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can absolutely recommend them. Uh, Their research is different. They do not cherry pick positive or negative charts, nor do they fall into the trap of confirmation bias. They have an intellectually consistent approach. They grew through a consistent set of relevant data, put them through the same consistent set of frameworks, and then summarize the whole thing in a checklist with a concise written summary. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer, which is a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website MerckResearch.com, sign up for one of the subscriptions, and enter the code CONTRARIAN at checkout to take advantage of this limited offer. That's MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. Okay, Chris Krug, your positions, let's have them. Okay, so we'll talk, I'll, this is my favorite company right now, and to be right. clear, I'm a shareholder, this is not investment advice. Sure. Um, so it's called Performant Financial. PFMT is the ticker. So this is about as hated of a company as you could possibly have in their legacy business. They're a collections agency for the IRS and student loans. So think about people that may own $5,000 to the IRS or people that might owe a couple thousand bucks on their student loans. And they go into call center type business and they call and collect it from people. And with the new Biden administration, they've floated the idea of canceling all student debt, or at least canceling some of it. And on top of that, over the last year, they haven't been collecting on student debt. There was hold on on collecting payments. So that's a legacy business. It IPO'd in, I believe, 2012. Uh, Parthenon, uh, a private equity shop, uh, owned it. And ever stock's gone from 15 bucks to it bottomed out at 60 cents. So over time, they, they started this new business, a healthcare vertical. The healthcare vertical, vertical basically saves money for insurance companies. So it's so they do two different things, eligibility and audit. Eligibility is you get into a car accident and you break your leg and you charge it to the car insurance company. In reality, it should be to the, uh, the, uh, the healthcare, uh, healthcare insurance. Okay. So they, they catch it. And they save money. It's it's a pretty it's not a very labor intensive business. That's that's more like like basically they, they have a piece of software that ha- uses AI and it catches claims, right? Then they have audit. Audits after after uh, companies paid, they they go and they audit the claims to make sure that they pay for the right thing, or uh, sorry, uh, the, the the insurance company paid. They audit to make sure that the uh, that the claims uh, properly coded, and they can save companies money or uh, save insurance companies money by catching false claimed uh, healthcare related expenses. Okay. So, they might, so you might have knee surgery and they charge you for something in the brain. So they catch that and they refute it and they, and they save the company's money. And the business model is they save them or they, they get paid 15 to 25% of the money that they, they're saved. So huh. on the eligibility side of the business, it's pretty, it's, it's mostly basically tech. And then on the audit side of the business, it's tech slash like a BPO because there's some human involvement there. But but regardless, EBITDA margins, I, I think, could get to, on consolidated on the healthcare side, um, about 35% over time. So okay. their competitors like Change Healthcare, HMSY, HMSY had between 30 and 35%. HMSY is like the, one of the biggest direct competitors. It's also like a dying carcass for the most part. And uh-huh. they're just eating them away. They, uh, from what I've heard, they uh, from from some of our expert calls. Uh, they haven't um, changed their software since 1995. Damn. Um, from a couple different That's people. Embarrassing. They, were, they were a legacy company. They were a legacy company. I, I believe they got lazy. Um, so so performant basically has this new software, or if you want to call it software, it's it's more or less a software that basically is replacing a bunch of HMSY's customers. So so here here here's the uh, here's the math on it. So. The company has $40 million in net debt, and it's a really bad piece of paper. It's a related party debt with a student loan servicer, ECMC Group, and they, the interest rates between 5.5% and 10.5%, depending on if they hit certain debt to EBITDA ratios. They have to issue, it gets renewed every year. They have to issue warrants every year to renew the piece of paper. 
It's really bad. Um, and in, in, in a market environment like this in 2019, I believe they paid the 10.5% interest rate. Now they're paying 5.5, but, but they should be able to get a lower interest rate. So that's your first catalyst. It's sometime this year, I believe that they're going to refinance. Then they have on top of a business that did $20 million in EBITDA. So two times, which is not the end of the world, but there's a high interest expense. There's $4 million in maintenance capex. So it's, it's maybe four times or so pre-tax uh, debt to pre-tax uh, free cash flow. But the key of the story is they just sold their legacy or they're in the process of selling. They sold some of the contracts of the legacy student loans business. So they're using that money to pay down the debt. So you have 120, $130 million market cap. Then there's an, uh, there's 55 million shares and there's another 5 million warrants um, that, that strike at, I think, 96 cents and $1.96 or something like that. But then, then you have $40 million in net debt. They're, they're selling part of the business. I think I think that they can get somewhere between 5 and $10 million for the sale of all their contracts, um, which is not a huge amount, but but it's, it's some, oh, you know yeah. what I mean? And that and that's deleveraging the business. I think going forward, they're going to be able to pay down. Uh, they're they're going to lower their interest expense, so the free cash flow is increasing. So they're going to have less less interest from less debt, and also the interest payments are coming down. Hmm. So last year they did sixty eight point nine million dollars in revenue on just healthcare for a hundred and twenty million dollar market cap um, for something that can do thirty five percent EBITDA margins going forward. That's that's pretty good. That's yeah. this year. This year they're have they're gonna they're they're getting to eighty three to ninety million dollars in revenue. I think next year they're going to be able to accelerate that. So I think that that within by 2023, 2024, they should be close to two hundred million dollars in revenue. Hmm. Because there's a unique aspect to this business. A lot of people might come out and say, "Hey, we have this great product. We're going to win all these contracts." But Performant actually has visibility for two two and a half years. Hmm. So this is the way the sales cycle works. Performant basically goes to these big insurance companies. Like they, they have, they have United Healthcare, they have Humana, uh, I believe they have Aetna as well. Now they're moving more towards mid-sized insurance providers, and they go and say, "Hey, we're so much better than HMS Wire, what you're currently using." And I, I've, we've done some checks, and it seems as though it actually is a superior product, and we're so much better. Let us, let us compete against your current uh, process. So. They come in and it takes three months to implement the first time. And, and they basically run a trial period for, it can take like a year. I, I might be a little bit wrong on that number, but, but it's, it's, it's something to that extent. So they know at some point during that process that they're beating the other person. Then they sign the contract at the end. Then it takes a year to integrate. Mm-hmm. Then it, the revenue doesn't show up for three to six months after that. So they should have visibility for an extended period of time. If you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, they, I get that. Yeah. They, they, they sign a contract, right? And then they should know for the next year and a half what the, they should know in a year and a half what the revenues can be. Yeah. And that's pretty sticky revenue at that very, point very because revenue. I mean, HMSY has been in this business since the 1990s and no one's disrupted them. Wow. So why, why and, not? You know, uh, I, th- I think, I think for a couple different reasons, I think number one, they deal with both the commercial insurance companies and uh, CMS. Okay. And I, I think unless someone's really mo- motivated to, I, I, don't, I don't think this data is easy to get in the first place. Right. Because you're getting it from the insurance companies and CMS and there are not that many vendors that actually deal with them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then, and then on top of that, I think that unless the product is significantly better, then, then um, it's not really worth it for companies to change because there's big integration expenses. Granted, the company performance pays the integration expenses, but, but, and also you have pretty long-term contracts. You have two to four year contracts that have auto renewals on them. Nice. So there are other competitors as well, but HMSY is the biggest one. There's Change Healthcare, there's Cotivity, which actually, uh, HMSY actually got taken out recently. Same with Change mm-hmm. Healthcare. They both got taken out between, uh, I think Change was 13 times EBD EBITDA and HMSY was 15 times EBD. Okay. So right now you have Performant that potentially has a, I'm going to say potentially because I'm not in the industry. I don't know for sure, but I've I've had calls from multiple people that say that this product's better, a better product that's trading at. We we think in a steady state they could do something like 35% EBITDA margins or at least 30% EBITDA margins. Hopefully, they don't make EBITDA for the next couple of years because we want them to grow faster. Uh-huh. Um, 
But if, if they're trading it so we can look at a revenue multiple, if, if you slap a five times multiple on, on 2023, what I think could be a close to $200 million in revenue, then you've got almost a 10 bagger there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. PFMT, I just looked here, it's trading around $2.22 a share, which is uh, kind of right where it's been over the last five years. I mean, you mentioned it was, it did drop down into the yeah, but it's a pretty different business now because they they got they're getting rid of slash they've gotten rid of yeah. a lot of the contracts. So sure. now they're going to wake yeah. up and they're going to realize this is a tech business instead of a declining secularly declining collections agency. Yeah, so that's great. It, yeah, and, and it's it's a real business. They have seventy million dollars in revenue. They should have between eighty three and ninety this year. I think in in the future they they could have much more, and there should be a nice runway where they could, uh, they can really grow over the next couple of years. Hmm. And, and so any sort of tech multiple, then it's a, Oh yeah. Know, then it's a different ball game. And you think this is a good entry point around $2 and 20 cents? I think so. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, earnings are, uh, they, I, I believe they have to be by May 15th, 45 mm-hmm. days to the quarter end. So they should report next week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they're probably going to give a lot more color on the healthcare business and what they think the healthcare business can do going forward. So I think I think right now is pretty good. I mean, we'll see. Um, yeah, I, I'm not saying buy the stock, but but do right. of course none of us. But, are, yeah, uh, yeah. but but yeah, I think I think it's I think it's very interesting at a 120 130 million dollar market cap. I think it's very uh, appealing here. Yeah, I was gonna say now this company probably doesn't have all that much coverage on the sell Zero. side. Yeah, Zero. so big, my process is I I try to get them to talk to investment banks. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, the investment banks can pick up research coverage. At least they can start going to conferences the company has barely gone to any investment conferences that's mm. going to change going forward mm. so people are going to start and it's a complicated story i, I broke it down simply but yeah it took, it took six months to really understand how good the business was mm. i've been following this company for since june or something like that yeah okay. and then I, I bought shares in in uh january of 2021 increased my position uh-huh um, okay. Now you said you talked to what, 60 companies a week. I, I try to. Yeah. And how many positions do you guys have in the portfolio total? And <laughs> we have, um, few, uh-huh. so the- four major positions. Wow. Okay. So that's not a very big, uh, and a hit ratio. Of like 1% positions. Yeah. 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 Um, so it obviously takes a lot for you to, to decide that you want to get into it. Um, right. now have you talked to management? What's management like there? I love the management. Mm-hmm. I think they're amazing, especially for a small company. So, I mean, this company, to be fair, was almost a billion dollar company at one point. Uh-huh. And I think Lisa, the CEO, was dealt a bad hand with with different administrations and just just the hostility towards the student loans business. Oh, yeah. And she had the guts to more or less completely switch the business model and then in, in turn sell the company, sell the legacy company and completely switch into this healthcare vertical. So huh. originally this healthcare was just focused on CMS. Then she, she started to... Um, go to the commercial payers and now they're dominating the commercial payers and they're dominating They're They're starting to really win in, in the commercial payers as well. And okay. there's a way for growth, but I think she's fantastic. Awesome. Um, I think right. same with the CFO. CFO is great. It's uh, for, especially for a small cap, you, you meet so many small cap uh, investment uh, management teams that are not good at all. Mm. So I, I think it's great. Mm. Now, what if here to bring the macro picture in just a tiny bit, the interest rates go up and it becomes harder to refinance that debt? I mean, you expect this to be imminent, that big, a big slug I think there. The reason why I'm confident that it's going to happen is because I think it's going it, to, the debt comes due in August of 2023. So okay. technically August 2022, and then they can sign a one-year extension. And I mm-hmm. think they're motivated to get it done this year. Mm-hmm. And also on top of that, they, they do generate cash flow. And so even if, even if they still have $20 million in debt in 2023, I think that it could, it, it, it could get refinanced pretty easily. Very so interesting. It's not like an outstanding okay. amount of debt. It's not mm-hmm. an outstanding amount of debt. So, so if, if I think once that sort of changes and they can get a real bank to, to give them some, uh, give them a piece of paper, then, then I think, I think it's, it looks really appealing, but oh, I like cool. things when they're before, that that happens. Yeah, exactly. Interest yeah. rates could rise, and I think they will rise over time. Sure. But but the reason why I when I bought this thing originally it was two and a half times EBITDA or something like that, 
now it's now it's trending at last year's EBITDA. Now it's trending at like six times. Mm. But if you look forward, if you if you can use that steady that in that steady state that those EBITDA margins, um, it, it potentially is extremely cheap. Mm-hmm. And then, like mm-hmm. I said, it, this thing could if they can get if they can really get thirty five percent EBITDA margins like their competitors, which I don't I don't see why they couldn't over time. It's not going to show up tomorrow because yeah. hopefully they're growing, right? But if they can, then it should be trading five times sales. That's that's basically fifteen times EBITDA. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. if fifteen times EBITDA, we it's it's almost a ten bagger. Mm. Fantastic. Off, off, off a couple of years out. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. All right, uh, Chris, I want to ask you some more about some other positions. Not not all of them because I don't want you to give away uh, your entire book, nor would would I expect you to do that anyway. But um, and then, but first, I want to ask you a little bit about your background and how you came to, uh, I guess, start Chatham Harbor Capital, and, and yeah, how you came to invest in the first place. So, uh, can you tell sure. us about that? Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. So I have another very. Uh very unique background. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I, w- I went to college at Clemson in South Carolina. Yeah. And my senior year in Clemson, I was going to become a business management major. And I was about to graduate and I took a finance class and I really liked it. So the next year I took something like 67 credits in a year. And yeah. oh, oh my God, I got an entire degree. I, I was taking 10 classes a semester. And, yeah. um, and so I didn't have an experience. So, so I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, uh-huh. but, my plan but then i moved up and i worked for a small uh uh broker shop and i was a trader and then about after two years of working there um i uh i started my own firm and then uh-huh. slowly and, and that that was six years ago or something like that and then slowly we launched a couple funds and, and yeah nice so, and so the fund has been around now for about five years or so it's been around for three three and a half years uh-huh like that three wow years. And before starting this, you just worked at, re- at retail brokers. Yeah, nice. Yeah, that's great. Okay. But I was always. I, I, I'm a f- fundamental investor. I, I do. Sure. I mean, being contrarian, I do. I do look at technicals. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think a lot of people would admit that they actually do, but I think a lot of people actually do. Of course, yeah. And the technicals. I mean, we make fun they of them, happen. but they do kind of work. I mean, 200 day moving average and stuff. I mean, that's kind of like especially say something. For low price stocks and high price stocks. Is that right? Because if something's trading at less than three times EBITDA or five times EBITDA or pretext for cash, whatever number you want to use, that's irrational. So it's, it's, it's like, why can't it trade at one times? Mm-hmm. So you have to, you have to look at the, you have to look at the charts sometimes to sort of know, I mean, mm-hmm. with more money, I can move things more for smaller names now. So I can, so technicals work less, mm-hmm. but, but you have to look at larger and larger companies. Yeah. Yeah. I believe do uh, matter, especially especially with indices. Yeah. So yeah. I'm pretty bullish right now on the uh, on the market. Um, okay, that's good to hear. Yeah, we, we uh, it, it depends what they're going to do with taxes. Um, okay. But uh, so we'll see. I, I, right. Hopefully, hopefully uh, they won't be too aggressive in terms of raising. Taxes. I suspect it'll get watered down a bit from what they've uh, anticipated hopefully. so far. I mean, that's yeah, been the but, pattern but at least. Yeah. The the path of least resistance is up. Exactly. Right yeah. So, um, I, I think we're, we might see 5,000 by the end of the year on the S&P. Wow. They so definitely, so definitely right around, what is it now, 42? Yeah, 42 like, right now or something. Uh-huh. Like I mean, we just broke through 4,000 on the S&P. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're approaching 3,500 on Dow. Right, 35,000, uh, yeah. Sorry, 35,000 yeah. Dow. On the NASDAQ, we're approaching 15,000. Mm-hmm. Um, if we break 15,000 on the NASDAQ, then next stop is 20,000. I think these big round numbers actually do mean a lot. Interesting, uh, okay. Like, because people people talk about them all the time. Yeah, and you get the news coverage then, and then yeah, people get, get in. Sure. About four thousand, four thousand, four thousand, four thousand mm-hmm. for months, and yeah. then they finally break it. There's yeah. there's no way what that, that has to be important. Mm-hmm. And so, Clemson, any any thoughts on uh, Trevor Lawrence and uh, how he's going to do in the pros? Uh, well, uh, did you read he uh, put his entire signing bonus? Yeah, I did see that. Ethereum and oh God, Dogecoin. Yeah. All right. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't mean he's a bad player, a football player, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he might like but who knows? He may even be a good investor. I mean, Bitcoin, you know, that's been. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? I mean, we've been making fun of it, but it's been. You've been you wrong. Know, <laughs> if you invested in Bitcoin in 2019, then, you know, you're sitting pretty. Anyway, yeah. okay, cool. All right, so let's talk more about uh, about your book. Tell me about some other companies that you've invested in. Okay, we, we like, in general, we like industries that people hate. So, yeah. 
we own private prison companies. Nice. Um, I think those. I mean, not nice that private prison yeah. companies are a thing, but yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. But but I I think private prisons are interesting. There, there's one core civic that we uh, that we own. Okay. Core civic CBX. Uh, uh-huh. No, sorry. Uh, what's the ticker? Uh, CXW. Sorry, I should know that. Um, <laughs> uh, core civic. Uh, it's interesting because they. It was a REIT. There, there's Geo Group and Core Civic. Those are the only two. And it was a REIT, and they switched to a C Corp. And they're potentially going to start buying back shares. Huh. Uh, I believe last year they did $400 million in EBITDA. This is a smaller position for us. We're, we're still doing some work on it. Okay. Um, but uh, they did $400 million in EBITDA, and the market cap's like 850 or something like that. So, and it's essentially a real estate company because they're sort of switching their business model. So, Geo Group has more, um, more exposure to more of the like political risk than, than, uh, than uh, uh, um, CoreCivic does. CoreCivic more does private prisms from for ICE and um, and the U.S. Marshals. Okay. So the argument is that with with uh, the U.S. Marshals is actually they they've had some hiccups recently with with some of the U.S. Marshal contracts, but I'm not really sure how the U.S. Marshals can be able to uh, to house their their inmates because there's only so much capacity of prisons. Um, right. And U.S. Marshals is the law enforcement for uh, their lawyers, but they're the law enforcement before people go to uh, as they're getting tried. Uh-huh. So, to to you you need to have your your lawyers within a certain amount of distance of the actual person before they get convicted. So these inmates have to stay within. I don't know if there's an actual. Um, uh, uh, distance, but it needs to be in a reasonable distance to where their lawyer is. And if they're in Cincinnati, then you can't ship someone to Alaska. So mm-hmm. the, whereas if you're a prisoner, a normal prisoner, after you get convicted, they can ship you, I believe, wherever. If it's a federal uh, crime, right? Yeah. Federal crime. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, so it's, it's a better business for the most part. And they're also switching the business model a little bit They're They used to own and operate the prisons. Now with some of their recent contracts, they build for the U.S. government and they take long-term leases from the U.S. government. Huh. So if you think about it holistically, like this is a business that's that's counterparty is the U.S. government and for very, very long-term leases, why should it be trading at two times EBITDA? Right. If you take out the political risk, like if you take out what the business actually is, it's a real estate company with a contract with the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a way you're long- illegal immigration if it's if you're if it's a nice not not really i mean i mean it's it's not it's not perfect i don't think it's cheap enough yet i mean that's right. why we have this is just a starter position for the most part mm-hmm. but it's potentially interesting um to to th- this industry because if we get over that hurdle and it becomes more okay because this is the reason why you want to have a private prison uh according to the company i'm not taking a political affiliation mm. at all in this, but but they claim that the that the U.S. government needs them because they can build prisons in three years versus ten years. For uh, it, t- it takes U.S. government. The U.S. government is not in the business of building prisons, where this company is in the business of building prisons. Uh-huh. So they they claim that they're going to actually grow going forward. And so these again, most of the most of the contracts are from ICE and U.S. Marshals. U.S. Marshals, yeah. As so opposed to the capacity of actual prisons along the border. Right. And so, so these are federal contracts, yeah, right? Because federal, ICE is a federal agency. Yeah. yeah. So it's, 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 look, like things are going to go wrong at this. There's going to be a lot of political heat. And that's why it's not a huge position for us. But I, since this is a contrarian pro- podcast, mm-hmm. it's an extremely contrarian stock. Yeah. But it, but it could work. Yeah. It could work if a new administration comes in or there's some settling down in terms of the political rhetoric right now, for the most part. But, but also, yeah. But also, I mean, this is one of those things. I mean, is anybody in the news or anything really tracking like construction of private prisons on the border? And is, is like, it's not like they're going to stop building them just because of some political pressure, are they? Right. Exactly. Apparently, behind closed doors, the government's very, uh, uh, very receptive to them. But, but right. it's, it's sort of a political thing. So we tend to like we've invested in, in coal mines in the past. Yeah, coal mines. Um, right. We have a big, or we have a decent sized position. This company, Civio, C V E O. Civio, we were buying that um, as oil was collapsing. But what Civio does is they do remote accommodations, so hotels, okay. at 
um, at oil sand mines and met coal mines. So as you know, oil sand mines have a lot of upfront CapEx, but when you actually extract the oil from the sands, then it's, it's very cheap to do. Mm. Mm. So, so the reason, so we were buying this at one and a half times free cash flow or something like that. It, it probably can grow going forward. It's not going to grow at hundred percent a year, but free cash flow should grow going forward, especially due to the fact that they're paying down their debt, but they have these hotels basically in the middle of the nowhere housing, um, housing, uh, what it's called, uh, workers yeah, on, yeah. on met coal mines, which is steel making coal and steel is not going away. Yeah. And then, and then oil sands, which is, I mean, I think, I think they can extract coal at $20 a, or not coal, sorry, oil at $20 a barrel. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's not going to be a problem. Right. Oil sand mines are not, these are really long life projects. Mm. So this thing was getting destroyed. It's a, it's a legacy spinoff. Uh, whatever his name is, uh, David Einhorn was involved a long time ago. And he absolutely, the position ended horribly for them. Yeah, that's they, they common to, for a lot of his positions, but yeah. Yeah, it, it was a spinoff that they were trying to turn into a REIT. Uh-huh. And it, it, it coincided with oil collapsing. So it was a, just a disaster and it spun off at 15 bucks. And then we, I mean, our, I can't remember what our cost basis was, but we were buying in the in the 60s. Right. After after oil went to, to 60 cents, as, <laughs> after oil went to negative. Yeah, so, yeah. So I like when an industry is getting destroyed. Yeah. There's actually long-term contracts and it's a very good business. Mm. Not saying I'm buying Google, but very solid businesses mm. that that are not going away that you can buy at very very low multiples. Mm. Mm. Now Studio is getting a little bit more expensive, but it's still cheap. I mean, they're going to do I believe between 90 and 95 million dollars in EBITDA this year. Okay. With a 250 million dollar market cap. Hmm. So, All right, and it's and it can grow over time. That's interesting, but let's go back to this prison story here because that, that really is contrarian, as you said. So, all right, so so talk to me. So they they actually they construct the prisons, um, which are I guess low low security since they aren't violent criminals. Yeah, they they also do they also do other types of rehabilitation. I mean, the argument that they and I'm not taking a political stance on this. But yeah, yeah. The argument that they would make is that that the inmates are safer yeah. because, because a lot of the old prisons are from the 1800s wow. and, like, and, and they're basically replacing them with new high-tech facilities that could do it cheaper. It's, it's costing less electricity. A lot of the maintenance on the, back to my maintenance CapEx, a lot of the maintenance on the old prisons is more than it would even cost them in a lease. Huh. So it's just, there's so much political hatred towards this that sure. it's, it's trading so cheap. But in reality, if you looked at it like, if you forgot that it was prisons and it was just, we left that out, then it makes sense why it should be trading at a higher multiple. Yeah. In- Industries yeah. go in and out of favor. Right. Although private prisons, I can't really see ever being in favor, but yeah, no, it's not going to be in uh, favor, but, but it probably but ne- even, yeah, nevertheless. Yeah. I mean, Massachusetts is coming up for a contract. Um, they just won Alabama. Um, they, uh, I think Hawaii, I think, I believe Idaho as well. Oh, so All these are state governments then that are doing this. Yeah. But behind uh-huh. closed doors, these company, th- these, uh, these, uh, states are going to them and yeah. they're potentially going to, uh, to win contracts in those states. And there, so there could be growth going forward. How but, much of this business is state versus federal? Do you know? I can't remember. Off the top okay. Of okay. It's, it's a new position for us. Yeah. Uh, okay. okay. So I guess I, it isn't that big of a risk to have the state contracts because yeah. states are, I mean, some are more leveraged than others, but they're still going to make their payments probably. Yeah, a lot of a lot of what I do is we we look at a lot of companies, like I was saying before, we have starter positions in a lot of companies. Right. And then over time, it takes me a long time to actually have a lot of confidence in the name. Right. So so I've like I said, I've been following performance for over a year. And so I, I know it very well. I've done a bunch of calls like we know it very well. Hmm. CoreCivic, I, I don't know as well. But, right. but it seems like an appealing potential investment idea. Mm, yeah, it sure does. Wow, that's definitely, I mean, that's definitely the type of thing that one would look for as, as a contrarian. Um, In the small cap game, you're, you're doing volume. Yeah. You, you're not, a lot of people spend a lot of time on a lot of different companies, but in reality, what, or not on a few companies, I mean, but in reality, what you're looking for in the small cap space is you're going to do, you need to do the work. I'm not mm-hmm. saying you don't need to do the work but it's you need to look at thousands of names because mm. so many things that companies pivoting all the time, there's always new news mm. that you have to keep, you have to keep um, 
paying attention mm-hmm. to, to stories evolving. And also small caps are extremely volatile. Mm-hmm. They're not covered. Small caps are what you need to, it, all big hedge funds, uh, they, they started in small caps, they made great returns and then they raised too much money and now they can't do it anymore. A lot of people right. look at Warren Buffett for advice. Sure. In reality, if you have 50, what does he have? $125 billion in yeah, cash. Something like that, yeah. Okay, fine. I'm, I'm going to listen to him when that, when that, when that happens. Yeah. But, but in reality, even Warren Buffett says not, I don't like to quote him, but, but he knows he can make 50 or hundred percent a year if he had a million bucks. Right. Yeah, nice. like, you, you can't do that buying Apple. I mean, no, you sure can't. You could, you could, but I right. mean, 20 years over, ago, yeah. over a long period of time, you're not going to do that. Right. 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 So, so I think, I think the, the points of things that could be helpful to people are you need to look at small companies. Mm-hmm. You need to look at cheap companies that are not going to go bankrupt mm-hmm. a little bit, a little bit more difficult to find. Um, but I think it's really, really important to look, look yeah. there. You can find people, you can find companies on screens. Uh, the 52 week low list used to be great. Um, used to be, yeah. Used to be. Now it doesn't really exist anymore. Right. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Um, let's see. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. What about, um, I was going to ask you, I was going to see something and I forgot. Oh, crap. Anyway, go ahead. I'll, I'll think of it. Uh, let's see. So, so that our process and as you need to, you need to look at as many companies as possible. You need mm-hmm. to be agnostic about the industry. Try not to take risk in, in super speculative things. Mm. So in drugs, some, sometimes you can make biopharma as a whole thing. Yeah. 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 Spec by uh, spec pharma. You, you can make money in that, but mm. um, it really, you're just gaming the, the approval yeah. process. That, yeah, exactly. Like for example, what, what you may want to look for, is companies after they've gotten approved, like health, uh, med, uh, med tech companies. Okay. I, I found some good med tech names after they've gotten approved that more or less people don't believe in the, their ability to roll out. So hmm. uh, a company, some ways to make a lot of money in small caps are companies that have raised a lot of money in the past. This is, this is difficult to do, so don't get me wrong. But companies that have raised a lot in the past that, um, that claim that they're not going to raise money in the future. And they're trading really cheap off next year or the following year's numbers if they don't raise any money. Okay. So you're always looking for dilution, right? Especially with um, healthcare stuff. Yeah. But but that's a hard way to that's a it's a hard business to run. Um, to, but to, dilution is a bad thing if you're an existing shareholder. Oh, dilution dilution is horrible. But if the dilution already happened, oh, I see. A lot of, a lot of these companies that raise a lot of money just keep going down. You're right. They constantly believe and they keep doing reverse splits because people constantly believe they're always going to raise money. And sometimes they're screaming at you that they're not going to raise money. Sometimes they're a lot of times they're lying. Yeah. But if you can actually go through the numbers and you can actually figure it out, then in, and there's a good probability that they won't in trust management. Um, it's, it might be worth taking a small position. Hmm. Uh, another, Oh yeah. Another thing um, I have for you. Um, don't, you don't always have to look at the U S markets. Um, sure. Some of the best ideas I've been finding right now are on the AIM in in London, which is basically you can call it the OTC in London. Yeah. Now so, you're now you're sounding like our friend Artem Fokin. That's he was on the podcast to talk about that. Yeah, exactly. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Artem and I are going through every single company on the Australian stock exchange. Yeah, he loves Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but there's also the Toronto Venture, there's right. the CSE, all these different exchanges. Like a lot of people are really interested in SPACs. Well, in Canada, you have these things called CPCs, Capital Pool Corporations, I think they're called, and they're basically mini spacs. Uh-huh. These you can raise between five and ten million bucks. I think that I think it was five, and they just raised it to ten. You can raise ten million bucks, um, and you have you had two years. Now um, the, the rules have changed a little bit, but in reality, they you raise money, and then you go try to find a company to merge into. All right, and then these investment banks basically do the merger, and they do some sort of pipe. And uh, a lot of tech companies going public in, in Canada, like a lot, a right. lot of uh, med tech companies and, and not med tech, uh, you, you know, um, healthcare software, uh-huh. but that, that's an interesting place. Um, if, if I was looking at large cap, I would look at new issues. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of these SPACs might be good companies, but they're going to be really good investments. I think they're going to probably all trade down together at some point. We used to look at SPACs all the time. But SPACs, you buy SPACs when they're two dollars, right? After after no one, because there's a reason why they're they're going through SPAC and not an IPO. Sure. But, but yeah, hmm. Australia's great. Um, Canada's great. A lot of you might want to find companies in Australia, Canada, London. They're going to uplist to the United hmm. States. Right. Those are great. Those are great opportunities because 
I just went to the Stiefel um, tech company conference, which is great, but it was a bunch of companies that potentially could uplist. Mm. And that's where you can find companies, the tech companies that have probably just as good technology as a lot of us companies. And a lot of them are us companies mm. um, just not listed in the United States. They trade it on EBITDA, mm. which mm. in the United States, all you have to do is uplist to NASDAQ mm. and you get a higher multiple. Yep. Yeah. So, interesting. So like that are very interesting mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. to, to make money in an, an environment like this. Yeah. We've spoken about a disparate, uh, to- disparate topics here um, because small caps obviously run the gamut from, you know, you name it, any type of industry. Is there any way that you, um, any communities that you, you have online or elsewhere to kind of, for people to discuss these things, or is it just something where each one is individual and you have to explore it on its own? Um, I mean, there, there, there's some websites. I mean, yeah. like Valley Investor Club, okay, seem to seem to like, but that tends to be a little bit larger. Mm. Uh, Ian Castle's uh, Microcap Club, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, mm. Ian's created something amazing there. Mm-hmm. Um, something that people could do is they could start going to uh, Chris Lahiji's LD Micro, which okay. is an investment conference, and oh. you can start meeting with management teams or Bobby Kraft's um, uh, Planet Microcap. Uh huh. And those are great conferences, or, or at least watching them. You, you don't even have to meet with management teams, but at least watching as many presentations from those uh, conferences as possible. Right. And, and you can at least hear the story. What's important, I think, at least, is listening to what management is saying. This mm. is trying to come up with your own opinion on it Right. first. A lot right. of people are, think they know what an industry is doing. Right. But in reality, if, if management's yelling at you that it's something completely different, then either you're right or they're right. Hmm. So, so I think it's very beneficial to just go to these conferences. I think they're amazing. I mean, Chris's and Bobby's conferences are, I think, the best out hmm. there. The Microcap. Hmm. Cool. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. If you can send me those links, or I'll try to find them. I'll put them in the show notes. Sure. Um, all right, Chris Krug of Chatham Harbor Capital. By the way, is that a reference to Cape Cod or anything? Chatham yeah, Cape Harbor? Cod. Uh huh. Okay. You just like the name or the? the... Uh, I I used to go there uh, when okay. I was. Okay. So. Oh, cool. Okay. That's a far away from South from North Carolina, but yeah, it is pretty far. But my family's from the north. Oh, I see. Yeah, cool. Well, in, in closing, maybe tell us how uh, listeners how they can find out more about you or about your firm. Sure, you can go to our website chathamharborcapital.com mm-hmm. or Twitter at chcap chcap two thousand sixteen. Oh, cool. All right, uh, well, uh, that's good. I didn't know you were active on Twitter. Ch uh, I'm not chcap twenty sixteen. Okay, cool. Well, at least I have somebody to reference when I put out yeah. the podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you, Chris Krug, for, for joining us on today. Thank you all for listening. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.